0: Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian tech ecosystem.
1: This is Asia Tech Podcast. We are talking to Craig Dixon in the Asia Tech Podcast studio. We're going to talk about accelerating Asia, startup founders, what Craig looks for in a good pitch from a startup founder, what makes a good founding team, how you put together a founding team, all coming up in the next 45 minutes here on Asia Tech Podcast.
0: Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. We are good. We
1: are in the Asia Tech Podcast studio. We are live. My name is Graham Brown, joined by Craig Dixon. Craig, welcome. Thank you, Graham. Good to be back. It's great to be back. We have a lot to talk about. We're yes. going to talk about startups accelerating Asia. We're going to talk about your journey into the world of startups as a mentor, advisor, investor. As well, and everything in between. How you got here? A man of many talents. Do we talk a little bit about that? You've got this interesting. Uh, anybody seen Craig's LinkedIn profile? I'm sure this is probably on your business card as well. You have Chinese characters on there, which stand for. What did we decide that meant?
0: Ding Kui. So, man of many talents. Is that what it means? Not self-picked. I want to make that disclaimer. Somebody assigned it for me. But right, yeah,
1: yeah. was it? Is it appropriate? You consider yourself Ding Quai? <clears throat>
0: So, I was always frustrated growing up because I had friends who were better than me at everything. But I'm pretty good at most things. It makes you a generalist. Like, generalist, yeah. Mm. Which I think is good for the career path I'm on.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting one, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Because you're surrounded by people who are specialists. Yeah, like, I, I actually made the Junior Olympics when I was 11 in swimming. But on my swim team, there were three other people in my same age group who were better than me. right. And so as far as I got with that, I was never genetically – like, they were just born to be better than me at swimming, right, right. no matter how much I practiced. They were seven foot tall. Yeah, and they had, like, Wingspan. flippers for feet, you know. So <laughs> I swam – like, like Tom Dolan, who won a bunch of gold medals, was in the swim club, <clears throat> in the winter group. And, yeah, so anyway, so it was frustrating. But I think the older I've gotten, I've been happy with the fact that I can kind of dive into things and get pretty good at them. Mm. But I'll never be winning gold medals and everything. Right. So I'm pretty good at running, pretty good at swimming, pretty good at tennis, pretty good at sales. Right. But you're but never I'm never gonna you? be number one. Right. Never be number one. Any of those. So swimming,
1: yeah. you uh what how old are you when you say you were doing trials?
0: Um, so I think it was eleven. So I made wow. it in hundred butterfly. I was swimming uh, what was it, eleven times a week. Wow. So yeah. But that's the kind of age when know.
1: everybody's kind of the same height and well, when that it was starts to differentiate from that, that on was
0: right. why I quit swimming. I hit puberty late, and so I made the Junior <laughs> Olympics. And then, like two years later, I couldn't even qualify for anything because everyone was in the genes, man, you couldn't fight that, yeah. right? No, the the gods were against me. Yeah, well, so, you know, you've so. read,
1: have you read the book um, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? And they, I have. You know, they, ten thousand. He,
0: he's talking about yeah. with
1: the ice hockey teams, and it was those that were born right. like in January, just because they had like a month or two months height and av- weight advantage over their colleagues or their, you know, the the kids from the same year how much of a difference that little 1% made.
0: I have a friend who set all sorts of swimming records uh, because when he was 11, he had like full beard and muscles (laughs) and we sit on the starting blocks and the audience would be like, who is this (laughs) like giant man on the blocks with these 11 year old kids and then two years later we caught up and he was terrible
1: right he'd bold by he just now. powered
0: through I mean the amount of water that was splashed out of the pool when he was in there because he just he had terrible form but right. he was just scooping gallons of water past him and we were like you know scrambling to to catch up and and so yeah it's it's interesting what uh, life throws at you it is things, right so, but
1: you, yeah. you've chosen that generalist path and i find it's interesting because what you're doing as well i mean you're sitting on the other side of the table from startups and people who are interested in innovation as well in, in a way that's a real sweet spot of a generalist isn't it is that you can see many patterns and you can see many things happening whereas somebody who might be a data scientist only knows the world of data and ai for example
0: Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I think actually running a startup is good for generalists as well. Mm. Um, You certainly often need a specialist or two on the team. Um, But what I found, you know, running a startup, which leads into what I'm doing now, but, you know, I had to do everything from fundraising, which is essentially sales to actual sales. So get customers to buy a product to strategy, to HR hiring, uh, to how to, you know, apply for grants and figure out how that system works. So... There's And then some coding as well. So Mm. I actually learned how to code Ruby a bit. Um, I didn't take it very far. Luckily, I didn't need to. (laughs) But but yeah, I think even running a startup took um, a lot of um, different kind of skill sets and talents. Um, And then now, yeah, it helps me a lot. I mean, for instance, just running a startup, I learned how to do kind of level one, level two DevOps. Mm. And I can teach that to startup founders who have no technical background. Right. But once it gets to a certain point, I have to call in the... Specialist to kind of do the deep dive. Right. Um, and I have similar skill sets around, like conceptually around, you know, APIs and back end and front end and things like that, just from running a startup for six years. Mm. And I think you're right. I think that allows me to kind of flip it around and say, hey, I can poke and prod here and there. And I understand deep enough into most parts of the startup world to understand if there's like a gap or, you know, if I need to, you know, dig a bit further or if I can help them. get introduced to a mentor or an advisor or an investor that kind of fills the gap that they have Mm. so yeah no Mm. i think it's i think it's correct
1: so the the startup that you co-founded zumata five five years six years you were doing that six years six years
0: six years yeah
1: when you when you ended that you didn't decide to go back in and do another startup like a lot of crazy entrepreneurs do do you you kind of got your training in that why did you then decide to sort of sit on the other side, if you like? And you were working, for example, at Meru-D, and now with Accelerating. You are sitting on the other side of the table from startups. Had you decided that you'd seen enough of the rabbit holes of technology that you are now ready to kind of sit on the other side?
0: It wasn't nearly as strategic as you're yeah. asking me. Um, In hindsight. I really fell is... into it. Yeah, I mean, I could tell a whole story about how <laughs> this was my life plan from age 20 or something. But... The reality of it was, uh, so I left my startup. Um, A lot of that had to do with um, having a child and going into family life. And startup was actually doing quite well, but not making enough to pay me what I kind of wanted to live like. Mm. (laughs) And so, frankly, it was a bit of um, uh, financial reasons. Mm. And so I left and I worked for a corporate who was paying me, what were they paying me? Two and a half times as much as I was making at my startup. Which allowed me to live a much more secure lifestyle, right? right? And afford a good school for my kid and and all that stuff. So that actually had a lot to do with it. Um, I also had a lot less stress. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I worked hard at Mirrodi, but it wasn't the startup world where it was 100 hour weeks and you you know, hustling. sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I didn't need to do that as much. Um,
1: Did you miss it though? I mean, you were much more comfortable. But you weren't on the edge, or did you not miss any of that? I was.
0: That- I have to say I was really scared starting at Moody because I'd done some advisory work with other startups, but I mm. didn't feel like I was a pro, and I had no idea whether I would be useful to the startups in the program or not, or how useful I would be. That's interesting. And I was really, I don't think I ever told anybody this at the time, because why would you? But um, I was fairly insecure about how my value would fit into the program. Right, And I think I just got really lucky that my experience and my personality or whatever, I think, was just a really good fit. And I was really happy there. And I think I was adding a lot of value and um, getting a lot of value. I really loved the job. Um, And, you know, it seems to be, I don't know if calling is the right word, but I really just felt like that was the right place for me. And... And now I'm doing a bit of both, right? So now I actually mm. have a startup that is an accelerator and invests in startups and stuff, right? So right. now I'm kind of doing both, and it's it's scary again because again I don't have a corporate like throwing me a nice paycheck every month. I have to go out and earn it. Um, <laughs> so you
1: got the hustle back.
0: I got the hustle back. Yeah. Um, but it's it's more stressful when you're older and 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 you know. But also, I think doing a startup the second time is a lot easier. Mm depending upon how you went about it the first time, I guess, because if fundraising is easier, um, the network is easy for me. I can call up VC partners and say, hey, let's grab mm-hmm. a coffee. Do you want right. to give me money? And yeah. they'll actually say yes, whereas, you know, when I was raising money before, I had to beg to meet with a low-level analyst at a VC.
1: What had changed yeah, I mean, so. that point when you were in Zamato and you were hustling for that startup as a co-founder and growing that. You went into Muradi and now you have a great network. Everybody knows you you have access, you can open doors, you've got a bit of confidence, a bit of a swagger. What What is it now? I mean, is it just that age and swagger or is it now that you've sat across the table and seen so many startups and been in the shoes in many ways of what a VC or an investor sees
0: on a daily basis,
1: what did you see?
0: Yeah, I think it's all of that. So um, I think I'd say that I was not a good founder originally. Uh, I didn't do enough research. I didn't talk to enough people to learn faster, and so I made a lot of mistakes. And what I, I think that's really useful for my current job because I made so many mistakes that if I see a founder doing the same ones, I I can call it out a mile away, and right. I have credibility with them to call them out because I can say, okay, what you're about to do, I did, and it was a disaster. <laughs> so don't do it. Right? Yeah. So, um, the reason I was able to get to the other side of of success, which we haven't exited yet, so you know it's still going, but we'll see. Um. I was able, I was a pretty good salesperson and I was able to outraise my mistakes. That's what I always say. I was able to raise enough money that even though I made all these mistakes, I still had enough cash on the other side to keep going.
1: On the original startup? On the original startup. Was
0: that a good thing? Well, it's a good thing for where I'm at now. Right. So we raised, we were one of the first Wavemaker investments, we were one of the first 500 Durians investments, and Mm. then a few other VCs and angels got involved. And I was a Block 71 in the early days with JFDI. And so I, I kind of accidentally have um, traversed the whole kind of, not the whole, but the Singapore startup journey mm. from becoming kind of early um, early with VCs and early with investors and startups to now we're having, um, at least in the region, we're having unicorns, which mm. was on, wouldn't have happened in 2013, right? And I was in the NRF, so the National Research Foundation invested in my startup. And so I've been a part of a lot of these things. And that that, I think, gives me the confidence that um, I didn't have because now I know um, – yeah, I know the players. I know the, the biggest um, VCs that are the most reputable. Hmm. Um, they come to our program and, and they, they speak to my startups and they advise them. And then you know, um, some of them invest in my startups as well. I always call them my startups. It's not really my startups. But um, it's funny how you start to think of them almost as like your kids or something. Yeah. <laughs> so I always say that. I think um, it's a good sign, though. Yeah, no, listen, I it's it's been, yeah, I don't know, I feel like I'm getting off on a tangent. What was yeah, well, I supposed to talk yeah. about? <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, it's a good tangent. But go, go yeah. back,
1: I mean, okay, you mentioned the point, and I think this is really interesting, because startups are going to watch this, and founders are going to watch this, and they don't mm. have the kind of experience, you know, they may have more experience in their specialism, but they have less experience in that generalist sense, where they sat with VCs, and they've worked with, you know, research foundations, and so on. You know, if you were to go back to the beginning where you were a co-founder of your first startup, Greenhorn, starting out, you know, you come from the corporate world, building a startup, and a lot of people do this, right? You now know the value of your network. Would you have done things differently or, you know, pitching that in a way to a startup founder who's busy building their AI app or their whatever it is, their, their game changer. They forget about going out and do the networking. Do you think that that, is a part that a lot of startup founders miss out on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think looking back, I would self-diagnose myself as having too much pride and thinking that um, I should do it all myself instead of asking for more help. So Mm. I think that was something that I just like had as a personality trait. And pride can lead to things like trying really hard and making high quality products, and there's like a good side to it, but there's also a bad side where sometimes you you don't ask for help because you want to be able to take credit for things without letting other people do I don't know. Anyway, I think my advice to other folks would be don't do that. <laughs> right. So to your point, um, just go out and put yourself out there. Um, pitch to people. I mean, we are always like, is somebody going to steal our idea? And, Come on. Give me a break. So if your idea is that easy to steal that they can listen to your pitch and, like, kill your business, then you don't have any You're idea. In trouble. Yeah. You have no idea <laughs> at all, right? So, um, So don't put – don't make everyone sign NDAs. I see startups trying to make people right, sign yeah, NDAs yeah. to like talk to me, and I'm saying eh, no. So, anyway, um, talk to more people, get advice, um, do some self-diagnosis, understand where your gaps are personally, as, as a team, and as a startup, and go out and find mentors and um, advisors who can fill those gaps. Mm. I think that's huge, and that's a big part of what our program does. Um, so we actually run um, we run all of our founders through a software program called Fingerprint for Success, and it's extremely effective. I'm super skeptical about a lot of these types of programs like Myers-Briggs and things. But, um, but it's actually a startup out of Australia, and it, it measures the motivations of the individuals and the team and benchmarks those against successful and unsuccessful startup founders. Mm. There's a pool of, I think it's like 16,000 data sets or people <clears throat> in there with different data sets. And what it's, it's actually solved a lot of conflict points. So a lot of startups fail because of co-founder conflict Um, And a lot of the co-founder conflict results from um, gaps in the skill sets or motivations of the team. And so an example could be like Graham and I have a startup and Graham and I are both like outgoing people and we're good at sales, but we hate working on spreadsheets all day or Hmm. we hate that sort of thing, right? And so, but maybe you really need three hours a day of that. And so you get into arguments over who's responsible for that, right? And stuff like that. So. Ideally, what you do is you find somebody who can be hired or an advisor or somebody who can come in and fill that gap. Mm. Um, If you don't do that, then you need to have an honest conversation about, hey, we both hate this. Um, Let's switch off or let's find some program so that it's fair. And I think a lot of what happens in in startups um, with regards to co-founder conflict is around um, perceived unfairness. Mm. And I see a lot of like startups pivot a lot, right? So at the time of the founding, like a 50-50 shareholding made sense. But then you pivot, and like now, one of the founders is actually providing seventy percent of the value, hmm. or thinks they are, and that creates that creates conflict. But you already signed documents, and you already have. So how do you how do you deal with that, right? Hmm. And so, so these are some of the tough topics we go through. But I, I think um, that all goes back to my original point: was ask for help. Um, and I think you know founder communication is huge. So we actually take all of our startups to Silicon Valley, and we do a full day founder communication workshop that deals with, like, Mm. all of these topics and runs through exercises and things. Um, I'd say we probably prevent one team per cohort from having some sort of explosion.
1: Self-destruct.
0: Yeah. Like, complete self-destruct.
1: Just going through that process. Yeah.
0: And and the fingerprint, and that's a, like, I'm not a shareholder in this company or anything, but... The fingerprint for success program, um, <clears throat> it literally has a one hundred percent rate of blowing the mind of my founders when the report is read back to them. Right, and so we'll have a facilitator come in who knows the program, and and you know she'll go, hey, so I'm seeing, you know, you have a ninety five here, and you have a twenty here. Um, This is what it means. Do you guys ever have arguments about these types of things? And they're just like, oh my God, we argue about this every week or every day. (laughs) And then, but that's step one, right? That's step one is identifying Mm. it and Mm. then you can try to find a way to work around it. Mm. Um, Yeah, so ask for help. It seems to me that... Put yourself out there.
1: Yeah, startup founders, entrepreneurs, eternal optimists, that's the problem, right? And we have, it seems you're identifying, we have blind spots. We can do this, but it seems like we have these blind spots which lead to self-destruction in a way. And this is the interesting part. I'm very aware of it myself. I've been an entrepreneur for 20 years and very aware of my weaknesses. And I know sometimes I'm a pig to work with or for, right? So I'm aware of that. And now you're quantifying it. That could be quite uncomfortable. Have you done this yourself? Have you run yourself and you know your your team through this process? And did you learn anything in that?
0: Um, <clears throat> Yeah, and I, funny enough, I disagree with the results, but the results <laughs> are the results, and it's a talking point, though, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, I have. I, t- I took the test first before I ever gave it to my startups, just to, yeah. to kind of see what it was like. Um, from a team perspective, I mean, I think my team now is much better fit than my team at my startup, and what I mean by that is the skill sets and motivations are quite different mm. with my current co-founder, Amra, and I whereas with my startup we were too similar and i think that did actually create conflict yeah because we were you know both wanted to do the same things um but now i think it's a much better fit and we complement each other much mm, better mm. and that's that's what you're looking for in a co-founding team and and so this goes back to you know what i'm looking for in co-founding teams and one of the things is um that so do you complement each other and do you both have in totality uh, the requisite skill sets to execute on your business model, hmm. right? Um, and, yeah, I'm going off on another tangent already. <laughs> I don't need to tell I mean, it's the whole co-founder thing as well, isn't yeah. it? Is
1: that, I, let, let's look at the, the situation. Startups come here. They sit on the show. Um, often it's one co-founder. So we only hear half the story.
0: But and that's negative points already. I mean, uh, all of my VC partner friends, you get pretty heavy negative points for being a sole founder. Right.
1: Yeah. So th- that's a challenge for <clears throat> a investors challenge. as well. If you have yeah. one of a co-founding team that you know doesn't see eye to eye with another one, that's an issue as well. But what are we looking... What is that chemistry? Yeah, right? So you
0: can't win, right? So you, uh, if you have one, at least you're not arguing with yourself, hopefully. But if you have two, then you have arguments. So you can't win. <laughs> you have I like three. I like three, actually. But Three? Is the magic number? I like three because usually you have an odd number so if you have like a democracy on a topic it's like okay well the two of us believe this and it kind of helps sway things 50 50 50 is always tough um and i yeah i'm in a 50 50 situation now so i'm I'm being a bit hypocritical but i think um three is good three um is usually the level where uh the resources start to be much more manageable as well Mm -hmm. so one is just tough i mean i i I have we have invested in in um sole, sole founders but I often have issues and have to advise them on like, stop burning yourself out. You need to hire somebody.
1: But that, that may be a personality <clears throat> thing, why they became a sole founder, not the fact they're a sole founder. They may just be that type of person. Yeah. That's...
0: I mean, maybe nobody wants to work with them. I don't know. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you're here right now, so there you go. Yeah. No, listen. I mean, there's so many examples of sole founders that become successful, but even in the big Sand Hill Road VCs in the Valley, it's everyone basically takes negative points if you're yeah. a sole founder. Is that simply risk? Um, it yeah, it's risk because versus... everything's you. Right. Yeah right? So you get to a situation, I mean, Bill Gates had co-founders, but at some point it became mostly him and Steve Jobs, it was mostly him. And if you're a sole founder, um, yeah, there's nobody there to jump in. So, you know, in my startup that we had three, but let's say we had two, at least we had a CTO and a kind of a salesperson. Um, You know, you could fill the gap of one of those and and you're in the same meetings all the time. So like I said earlier, I I learned a fair bit of tech. If our CTO quit, we'd be okay for a few weeks. Hmm. We could actually, I could actually help the sprints get through i could look at some of the architecture and say okay let's do this and i could bring in some advisors for the more technical bits that i wouldn't have a clue about but but if it's one
1: yeah that's it that's it end of the story it's pretty much over so when you work with startups you sit across the table for from them you mentor you advise you're involved in investing you all different aspects of startups in your career and being a startup founder yourself what do you look for when you know if i was to sit here across from you as a startup founder what is there certain character traits you look for now you know you have a bias obviously the fact you've seen successful startups, therefore you know you you know the kind of qualities that makes it successful and also those that don't. So can we talk a little bit about those those the personal qualities rather than maybe the fact that this person's really good at data science, for example. What sort of things do you look for? Is there a sparkle in the eyes is there the, the pixie dust or
0: whatever it is? Yeah. <clears throat> so from a personality perspective, um, I think the biggest one's passion. So uh, one of the questions I'll ask startups applying to our programs is, you know, why do you care about this? So a lot of the folks in our program are, I mean, their CVs are way better than mine. It's, you know, mm. it's we have, we have, you know, a guy who's a PhD in AI from MIT in our program, uh, Stanford, Harvard, you know, McKinsey, Temasek. All sorts of crazy companies. And they're doing a startup and they're making no money. And why? Why Why are you not out there making half a million dollars a year or whatever it is, right? Why mm. are you here working more for much less? Why, does, why why do you care so much? And the reason that's important from an investor perspective is startups are hard and they're going to get really hard and you're going to be really stressed. And if you're not passionate, you might just quit and go make, go back to McKinsey and make mm. your money. Mm. But if you're passionate, there's more likelihood that you're going to stick around and see it through. And so, the, you know, you get back to, if you want to call it grit, you know, there's a really good um, TED talk on grit um, by a, a professor who um, does testing around it. And that's interesting. I think we, we do it unscientifically, but grit's huge. Um,
1: grit meaning just never giving up. Never assistance. giving up.
0: Yeah. And you get back to this pride thing where it's a double-edged sword, right? Mm. But I think that has a lot to do with it. So I'm going to make this work no matter what. Mm. I mean, we just had, you know, Jenny Pan who… Um, She's amazing. She's, I think, four years in. Yeah. Just made her first sale, but it's with the largest airline in the world, and now her startup will be one of the highest valued startups in all of Murcia, which is 130 startups. Yeah, she's phenomenal. Just pushing it through. I mean, uh, so that's an example, and we have a, we have quite a number of other ones. In fact, the best ones are mostly female, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um. But, but that's 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 a big one. So why are you here? Why do you care? Hmm. And that's that's important not just for grit. It's important for inspiration. So, are you going to inspire your employees because you care so much and you have so much passion? Um, and investors too. I mean, investors are humans at the end of the day. At least mm-hmm. most of them are. Um, and uh, do you
1: want to go off on a tangent on that one? We we'll save, we'll save that for Yeah, We'll save that for
0: yeah. Now I'll bring my list of uh, in, in, inhuman investors next time. No. Um, so the investors are humans, and they want to – it's a 10-year relationship potentially, mm. right? So these funds, they have a 10-year tenure, tenure timeline on the fund. They, they deploy over three to four years, and they expect in the next you know six years plus to get some sort of exit or, or fail. Um, do you want to meet for coffee with this person every quarter or month? Do you want to hang out with them? Do you like mm. them? Are mm. they fun? Do you want them at your events? You know, these are – do you want – when they get up on stage and when they're doing business, their reputation is going to potentially wipe off on you. Are you happy with that? Or are you worried about that? Hmm. So things like that. Uh, morals are huge. I've actually had a number of really, really high potential founders apply to our program and get pretty far into the process. And we decline because – I just saw some red flags around morality like taking, morality taking shortcuts. It. Right, okay. Potentially, you know, lying to customers so you can They're get warning the contracts, aren't they? You know. Yeah. Now,
1: now they only get worse, don't they? You would have kicked yourself if you let that run and thought, well, there was the sign back there. Well,
0: the other the other piece I think for me it's a bit different because we we run these cohorts where we have 10 startups sitting next to each other day after day. Right, yeah. And we have events and if you let people in like that, they can be toxic. Mm. And it can be a bit contagious. So if you don't hold a high standard from admission then you, you run the risk of of that kind of um, turning viral to some yeah, extent. Yeah. So,
1: but you, yeah. you take a risk when you take somebody on board in any batch, don't you? Because you haven't seen what they're capable of until they're actually inside, you know, within your environment as well. So it's like employing somebody as well. You don't really know until you yeah. know, game time actually what they're capable of. You know, they can polish very well you know, at the, the beginning, but when you take people on board, there's always a bit of a risk, isn't there? So.
0: Totally. Um, I think some of the ways we've been able to mitigate that, and we'll see because you know, my new thing's new and, and I don't know what we're gonna get. But I think at muradi we you know had a reputation and we had alumni. And so by the end of um, by the the third batch, um, we got at least 50% of our cohort was from referrals. Mm-hmm. And that just like employment, they usually give bonuses if you refer, if you refer a friend yeah. to a job, right? And one of the reasons why is because, hey, it's your reputation on the line as well, right? de risks it, yeah. it. It filters it. Exactly, it's a social filter. So we got to a point where I think we were we were doing pretty well with that. Um, now we do do a roadshow, and we we go and we're doing one up upcoming this January where we travel to six um, six of the startup hotspots around. We have events, and so we're meeting the founders face to face. And I think you can tell pretty quickly if they're going to be a personality fit for the program and for you. Mm. Um, and and we run pitch contests, and I think six or seven out of ten of the last cohort were the winners of the pitch hmm. competitions. And so that those things actually work, it's not just like a flashy thing. Absolutely, it actually provides value. But and then we fly everyone to Singapore for a day and a half to meet with around thirty to thirty to forty of our um, advisors, mentors, and investors, including hmm. like top VC partners. And they do round robin. I mean, it's fifteen minutes, bang, bang, bang. They have a score sheet, <clears throat> and then we do a we have a judging panel, but. It's a it's a pretty hardcore filter, Mm. and we have, gosh, I mean, yeah, thirty to forty potentially more people meeting each of the top twenty five startups to look for red flags. Mm. So it's a it's pretty robust. It's
1: a long process because you're going to filter out people. People would drop out if they don't have the grit, right? So that's a key yeah. part of it, just showing up. And just filling make.
0: out the application.
1: There you go, step one. Step one. That's tough. I want to talk about your roadshow in a minute. I want to ask yeah. you a question because you're recruiting yourself as well, and every startup is recruiting. And one of the questions I've been thinking about myself as a startup founder and recruiting is do you look for different qualities in the people you recruit than those that you would invest in? So, for example, you know, as a startup founder – I have this sort of warped worldview that everybody should be entrepreneurial, right? Everybody should work as hard as me. Everybody should risk as much as me, which is unrealistic. I mean, if my wife was like that, for example, it wouldn't be a very good relationship. You talked Mm -hmm. about balances, right? You would have somebody who's more sort of comfortable with stability and so on. But I digress. (laughs) The point being about recruitment is that I'm not sure if everybody can be like that, especially in recruitment. Do you have different kind of expectations when you recruit, or do you expect the people you recruit into a very entrepreneurial environment to be entrepreneurial themselves?
0: Um, No, Uh, and this is mainly talking about, I'd say my startup experience is when I did the most hiring. Um, We primarily hired for, it was mostly tech. I think 90% of our team was tech out of 23, I think when I left. software developers and so uh, there's a few variables there but at the end of the day it's you know are you are you a passionate coder who's always looking to learn new things Hmm. um was really important for us i didn't we didn't require entrepreneurial mentality to be on the tech team now you did see people rise to the top over time and become you know managers of their team and, and things like that but I don't – it's tough here. I think <clears throat> my experience with the, um, the hires we had here was they didn't necessarily appreciate the value of equity mm. as a form of compensation. And so we generally had to pay market rates. And even with the equity, um, I'm not sure they cared that much about right. it. Right. And so I, and you I,
1: care a lot more about it than they do, right? That's the obvious yeah. point, right? Which so not a thing that you're kind of going to sell to them as a as a reason for joining.
0: Well, We tried all sorts of things. I mean, I, I tried I tried to monetize the equity. So what I did was um, I came up with a program where, so we did we did uh, we did a vesting schedule on um, employee stock option program, and I let them cash out fifty percent of their vested options um, on a quarterly basis, right. And that was all based on like a bit of a valuation calculator that we did based on conversations with investors and stuff like that. And I guess what made me happy was nobody ever took that. Right. So then I'm like, okay, well, they must value it something, right? Cause they're not taking the cash, but I didn't, you don't have this Valley mentality where it's, and uh, yeah, and it's, it's not, um, it's not illogical and it's not totally cultural. I think it's, yeah, you know, we haven't had these big exits that feed back, right? right? Okay. So if you, if if like half your friends have had million dollar exits from different startups, then you think, oh, well, maybe maybe I'll get that chance as well. Right. But here, how many of those are there? So just from a statistical perspective, it's fairly logical to say, well, there's no proof out there that this equity is worth anything. Right. Yeah. So, it's just a bonus. Yeah.
1: It's a nice thing. Yes.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's if it happens, I'll. That's great. Yeah. But it's not. I'm not going to attach a lot of value to it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting point. So that's a uh, no. We didn't we didn't hire for entrepreneurship um, because we were mainly hiring for tech talent. Um, I think if we were hiring for the management team, that would be much more important. Mm. And I think we would definitely need people who are much more motivated by equity at the mm. at the top. Um, but yeah, on the tech side, it was it was f- fairly standard. But um, it's an interesting very focused on way passion way. though. We, the passion was really important for us mm. to to get passionate coders. I mean, we had we had guys who were coding like. Three in the morning and Saturdays and Sundays. And right, but they're not like entrepreneurial, that. right? So, they're
1: just people who just love making stuff.
0: Well, we did spin off a couple of startups, but I don't think they went anywhere, and I was yeah. I was pretty happy with that. We had we had some software engineers who left to start their own business. Um, I think they probably were missing the the CEO side of it, like mm. the sales mm. and the business savvy side of it, and that's probably why they didn't they didn't work. But I I would hope we had a small part in motivating them to try. And one of them is still going on the third or fourth one, so that's cool. cool. So yeah, I like yeah, that. That's good. But, um, yeah.
1: Good. Yeah. Roadshow. Roadshow. Let's talk about that. That excites me, just hearing about it. Six so, cities. Six so, cities. obviously, we're outside of Singapore, then.
0: I should probably – should I just do a one-minute – got to explain, like, Accelerating Asia versus the Accelerator, because there's – Absolutely. Let's yeah? do it. I'll do a little plug. Let's yeah. do it.
1: Okay, cool. You're in the right place. So <laughs> –
0: So we left Murudy at the end of June. uh, It was shut down by Telstra. And so we spun up Accelerating Asia to kind of take over a lot of what Murudy was doing in the Mm -hmm. past. Um, And there's two pieces to that. Um, So the first piece is Accelerating Asia, and that's been a focus for the past three or four months. Um, Accelerating Asia is essentially an innovation consultancy that works with corporates and government. Um, We we focus on plugging the gaps um, in startup engagement. So corporates who have programs or want to design programs who kind of know that they don't know so much about startups or they don't know how to motivate the right startups. They don't know what profile of startups are the best fit for their program or their mm-hmm. internal KPIs. Anyway, so Accelerating Asia is, is kind of filling those gaps there. And um, I think we've been quite lucky. There's, there's a huge demand and huge, huge amount of resources being thrown out there by corporates to engage with startups. Uh, but there seems to be a dearth of resources to help them um, do so effectively. And so we've had a pretty good uptake on that. So that's kind of part one. Part two, which we're just starting to roll out like a website and and things like that is the Asia Accelerator. Um, And that's what the roadshow is for. So we'll be recruiting in January um, and applications will open, I think it's January 15th Um, and we're going to be traveling. um, So Singapore will be the first date. So we'll have Mm -hmm. a Singapore event on the 15th Um, and I think. Was it two of our last cohort came from the Singapore Roadshow event last year? Mm. So we still call it Roadshow, even though it's still in Singapore. <laughs> right, right. So um, what, what is yeah. the roadshow?
1: How does it work? You invite people to apply to come to a, a demo day or pitch day, or is it this they're pitching you, or are these your existing cohort? How does it work?
0: So it's um in each city we do at least one event. We usually start at around 3:30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon with one-on-ones. Mm. And so startups can sign up to do um, office hours essentially with me. Um, We're going to have some AWS solution architects with us on this tour. So you'll be able to talk to like a DevOps expert or something like that. Um, And then we often have alumni who've been through the Mirudi program or um, partners on the investment side. So angel investors and VC investors. And so Mm -hmm. essentially you get your 15 minutes to pitch your business and get feedback. Um, After that, we typically do an hour or so where um, we talk about the program. Um, we take questions and answers. And then after that is the pitch contest. And mm. so anywhere from 20 to, I think in Jakarta last year, we had like 70 startups pitch. Mm. Um, and we were there for a long time. <laughs> 70 startups <laughs> pitch you in person. In person, in front of the crowd. Uh, how, how are you like yeah. at
1: number 69, 70? Are you digging deep to find motivation when you hurt? What keeps you going in those circumstances?
0: Yeah, I mean, I can always be re-energized by a good pitch hmm. but yeah certainly there's a bit of <laughs> i didn't expect <laughs> 70 to show up i thought there'd be like 30 or 40 but it was just a yeah well, well, so,
1: okay I, I know this is a very long um subject area but at the top level when somebody sits and then or stands and pitches you at the road show what is a good pitch without you know looking at different subject areas what is it that they have that makes it a good pitch are they just a great storyteller or is there more
0: I think you've hit on something that's really important, which is storytelling. I think too many of these pitch frameworks are just saying, oh, problem, solution, product, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, you know, going back to this passion topic, the best pitches I've ever heard, um, and I'll give you an example, actually. This is from one of the startups in, in um, one of the programs that I was involved with. So she created a medical device that's um, a very, a super accurate body temperature um, monitor that has a suction cup on it. And she built this because her friend died of cancer because they couldn't do what this product does. And so the, the details of that are simply that um, when you have cancer and you go into remission, there's like minute changes in your body temperature, but they're consistent. And so if you have this, it's an IoT device that was sending. And so you're in the hospital, the nurses come by like every four to eight hours and take your temperature, mm-hmm. but something can change in the meantime. And that's what happened in her case. And so she built this to prevent other people from losing their family members and friends. Wow. And I'm like, Whoa.
1: Yeah, no, that's a pitch. And, and I half. don't
0: expect every startup to get anywhere close to that. Yeah. In fact, my startup has quite a boring story. Who, who but, is that? Shall um, I'm it? totally blanking on it. It so, was, it was a couple of years ago uh, okay. out of the Sydney batch. Yeah. We'll put um, the details
1: in the show notes if we find them. Yeah. So that, that must be quite powerful. That blew you away. Yeah. yeah. That sort of stood out, but that raises the bar for everybody now.
0: Yeah, sure. Listen, I mean, that's not really the bar. That's just the most ridiculously awesome example I can think of, right? (laughs) But if you're going to pick, you know, you're you're selective
1: in how many people you can actually back, right, and bring onto your program. I think Jenny's
0: a really good example. Yeah, Not to keep bringing up Jenny Pan, but she's so passionate about animals and pets, and she noticed how, you know, mistreated they can be Mm. in transport on on the plane and, and, and just thrown into cargo in the warehouse and Temperature control, and so she came up with this product, and she had no background in hardware, and she made so many mistakes along the way, and um, you know, connecting with the wrong people and you know, things like that. But her passion saw her through this, mm. and. That's what I'm looking for. She's also an extremely good storyteller. She wins like every pitch contest she enters. Which yesterday she won another one. Right. Um, so That's
1: fantastic. Yeah.
0: But um, I mean, we we flew to Silicon Valley with the teams, and within 24 hours, she won a pitch competition at 500 startups hmm. uh, out of 24 Silicon Valley startups. So wow, it's yeah. So but passion, what, passion, what, what passion, that, passion. Right? Communication right. storytelling is awesome.
1: Yeah. It, what what is that? Is that do they do you have to tell a story about something which is really personal to you i mean obviously jenny pets it's a big thing for her it's her life right and then obviously you mentioned another example that the you know the suction cup body temperature friend lost through cancer that one as well does it have to be something that's really personal what if i'm just developing you know like a a a chat bot for insurance (laughs) no disrespect to those people but you know i might struggle to find that sort of like personal angle
0: yeah so not every startup's going to have it, and my startup didn't have it either. Right, so um, a passion for solving that problem. Uh, good stories around that are often. Uh, let's use insurance. So I, you know, I've been insurance for fifteen years, ten years, whatever it is. Um, this is a huge pain point that I had, and I mm. talked to all of my coworkers and friends that were in the, you know, and they say, oh, this would you know change my life if you could you know build this thing. Um, so those are really good stories as well. So people have like a specific experience with it. And so they have passion around the fact that it would save them and people like them so much time and, you know, make their lives better and make a lot of money at the same time. So that's, that's fine that there's angles like that. Um,
1: it's a real problem though. That's the point, isn't it? It's a real pain point. It's
0: a real pain point. I mean, I like people who are solving problems that are their problems or their friends' problems or, You know, through their employer, they've learned something that's kind of a gap in the market. Yeah. So, did you? I'm not sure if you had the Insights Club guys on, but um, they were in our cohort three, and they they have this really interesting product that essentially aggregates um, consumer insight surveys.
1: Yeah, yeah. But now they're coming
0: up with like their own that's going to have some AI functionality to do some automated stuff and build their own content. Um, What I loved about those guys was. So I have a question I ask myself when I, when I meet a startup. I say, if you gave me, Craig, $10 million, could I beat you at this? Hmm. Do you have a moat? Do you have, like, What do you have that I can't do myself or buy, right? And Insights Club has this, this deep industry experience working for the agencies and you know, stuff like that that I don't know, can I buy that? I don't know, maybe, but I don't know the first thing about what they're doing. And so I can't compete with them. And so that gets you to kind of step two. Okay, there's a moat here. And mm-hmm. it's, it could be IP, it could be institutional experience, or it could be like your team. And so you could say, you know, on our team, we have, um, you know, the guy who built the bot for Amazon or something like that. Mm-hmm. And now he's on my team and you're like, holy crap. Okay. Yeah. He's like top hundred in the world at this. That's a moat in itself. Right. So, um, I, again, I don't know where I was going with that. But could, could, <laughs> could that moat be
1: relationships as well?
0: Oh, of course. So network. So one of the um, advantages of older founders, and I keep seeing more and more data coming out that the average age mm. of successful founders is like forty-five years old. Yeah, um, and that I somewhat start to relate to that as I edge towards that 45. age. Forty-five. <laughs> I'm one year over the fence. Forty-six. <laughs> right, oh, so, so you're behind. I, I completely you're agree behind. with the data. Yeah. Um, so, but that's the example of of age. I think is um, you have usually a bigger network. Mm. Um, your friends have money, maybe to give you for you know your fff money friends family fools um and you and you just um and you have more experience but yeah i think now if i were to do just a regular startup not not what i'm doing now which is a bit easier than a startup i think um gosh so much easier just go through linkedin okay who do i need do i need an investor do i need a mentor yeah, yeah. do i need an advisor i could i could build a team and. A month yeah for an investor looking you know.
1: at that i mean with your 10 million question would the relationships yeah. be enough as a moat to say okay i can't beat this guy because of who he knows
0: probably not why can't i get to know those people right you're know. not old enough <laughs> <laughs> not yet i'm getting there uh yeah listen i mean moats don't have to be one thing so you can you can make it like a point system and say okay the team is um five points and there's a network that's five points and you know, yeah. stuff like that. But you know, we had a team in our last batch, um, Item Hospitality, and they they were quite they were quite behind some of the other teams with regards to like the product and the deployment mm. and the traction, but they they more than made up for it by the network they had.
1: Yeah, they were in here. Fantastic. So they were in here, yeah, Matt yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and Steve
0: and Steve was in here, I think. So those so. guys, I mean, they raised around and they have I think like the ex-CEO of IHG hotels mm. on their board and as an investor. And 20 years experience in the industry Absolutely. they yes. saw this firsthand and they had the network yeah. and so with them it was more of a point system they didn't have a specific moat in fact i could build that product overnight mm-hmm. it's not a hard product to build but to your point i don't know the guy who ran ihg i don't know the people at these hotels that could buy be my be customers mm. as well as they do so yeah yeah
1: Awesome. Yeah. And so, on your roadshow, just in rounding up, I know it's an mm. ambush you with this question here. So, ambush away. I'll ambush you. Is that what do you, you want to be surprised by? And I'll, I'll preface that actually. I'll give you time to think because when, when I mm. do the interviews here in studio, what I want to see more of are, for example, the areas which aren't told as stories, like, for example, a lot more female founders. Not because, you know, uh, it's it's a great diversity story, but because I believe those are the people that have hustled harder because they've had less role models. They've had less support. They've had people, you know, say, well, you know, that's not a a very female world to behave. You know, like when, you're, when they're kids and the boys are playing with Lego and building Lego bricks, it's easy for, you know, parents to look at that and say, that's great behavior. But like girls are sort of pushed in a direction. So I want to see more of those stories. I want to hear more stories like the Jennies of this world, Jenny Pan, yeah. for example. And the ones that you mentioned, mm. but the fact is they're still in the minority. We still get that in the studio eighty eighty five percent of our founders are men. That's just how it is. It's changing, yeah. but I want to see more of that. So when you go out into your uh, roadshow, what else are you looking for? What kind of surprises are you sort of trying to open up? What you want to see out there? Because I'm sure you're going to see twenty thousand blockchain startups come through the door.
0: Oh gosh. I don't know if there's anybody who's a bigger skeptic of blockchain startups than me, but that's a whole other topic. Um, well, there you go.
1: So what, what do so you want to be surprised let by? Me,
0: let me just let me let me mention two things before before I get into that specifically, because I think they're relevant uh, to the answer. So um, with regards to the female topic, I've actually found on Roadshow that whilst, whilst the percentage of total startup founders um, being females quite low, the percentage of the best is quite high and so we actually had 50% of our teams in the last cohort had female founders um, and I think most of them were the CEO um, that's the hustle fact and so when I go yeah home. exactly so when I go in roadshow and I see the pitch competition you know out of let's say Jakarta was where we had the 70, the 70 pitches um, yeah 60 were men or 55 were men or something like that but if you looked at the top 10 it was probably 50-50 or 40 you know something like that And mm. and so I think yeah, there's something to be said for having gone through the adversity of the challenges and being <clears throat> just not afraid anymore. You know, they've already had people dumping on them and, you know, telling them, what are you doing? Like, you should, you know, do X, Y, Z. And they said they've already been through that. So hmm. so I think to some extent it can become an advantage later. Um, what am I looking for surprises? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, how about things I don't want to hear? So, I don't want to hear blockchain unless... (laughs) Like, does your startup need blockchain to do what it's trying to do? I can guarantee you, like, almost no... I found almost nobody can tell me yes. Right. Well, they can tell me yes, but I won't believe it. Uh, Don't talk to me about crypto or ICOs. Um, Like, just just go raise your crypto money and don't talk to me then. Like, that's that's a whole different thing. Um, I want to see... I want to get engaged with more – I like genomics. I like quantum tech. And I've tried to engage, but it's difficult because the people doing these things um, tend to be pushed into a channel where they are cocooned by institutions. Right, yeah. And they don't get promoted out to – spin up a startup for the stuff they're doing. And I wish... So I think Australia is actually much better at this than Singapore is, although there are efforts. And I know NUS and some of the universities are actually starting to try to integrate more entrepreneurship into their R&D. But it's still early days. But but, um, Sydney and... and, Sorry, Australia and like UNSW and some of these institutions are actually quite good at um, getting the R&D folks to turn it into startups and go out and form their own entities Mm. and, and stuff like that. And I think... I'd like to see way more of that, and not just here in Singapore. But I want to go to Jakarta and see somebody doing quantum tech. Whoa, that would be awesome! Yeah, I want to see that. I want to, I want to go to Bangkok and see somebody that's doing like a some sort of genomics mm. startup. That you know, some of them need a billion dollars in ten years to get FDA approval. But a lot of these concepts can be spun out um, in different ways that can get to market faster without regulatory approval. And I, I meet with some of the startups here at the Genomics Institute here in Singapore, and I'd say. And they have a startup program. I give them credit because they're, they're actually doing a lot of the right things. And maybe 20% of them could actually join my program because they don't need – they can go to the lab once mm. or twice a week. But they can also come in and learn how to pitch and sell and meet investors and, and stuff like that. So um, <clears throat> I love med tech, biotech, um, uh, machine vision, um, AR. We've had VR, but I, I'd like to see AR. Mm. I think AR actually has a lot more applications than VR. VR to me just reminds me of some of these science fiction books I read, where twenty percent of the population is just like living in VR and not doing anything with their lives, right? It's like Ian Banks' Culture series and things like that. But but the AR has just oh my gosh, just the applications and and it's starting to get into industrial applications and things like that. But startups that could, um, I think there is so many ways to to Mm. monetize that and and make people's lives better. And you know, at the end of the day. what makes me feel good about what i'm doing is i i i honestly believe that you know founders can be one of the major sources of solutions for the hardest problems we face and i think you know your startup now doesn't have to be saving a billion lives you see people that mm. like bill gates ran a software business but look what he's doing now
1: yeah right he didn't start out right? to say i'm going to yeah you know so cure bill gates's pitch in 1980
0: yeah. wasn't like you know i want to save a billion lives mm. and cure malaria right so you don't have to, um, you don't have to sell me on it today, but I'm gonna fill you out that you're the type of person that wants to do that, mm. right? So I don't know. Well, yeah,
1: that's a good start. So, and in terms yeah. of what sort of stage you want to see people, where, where where's the sweet spot? <clears throat> it's
0: a good question, and this this kind of talks to the strategy of our program. So the um, the just some basic data and like numbers subject to change. All my disclaimers. Um, we're looking at giving each startup hundred thousand dollars. Which is on the high end for for the region, um, and we're we're doing it through a safe note with a with a standard discount. And what we're the the market we're looking for is startups who are six to twelve months away from getting around, whether that's a seed or a Series A. Mm. Um, I don't think many people are going after that market, and I think a lot of the startups could still use guidance in a program, but because of the valuations being offered by most accelerator programs, they won't go into them. Mm. And so, and what we found at Mirudi in the cohort three is when we switched to these terms, we got much more mature startups. And our last cohort in less than 12 months has raised over seven and a half million dollars in follow on funding, which I don't think any other accelerator's even close. Mm. So we're basically targeting a similar, um, a similar level of startup. Um, so typically you have um, product, you have traction, you have a full team. Um, traction doesn't have to be financial, it can be users. Um, but you know, money's always good as a way to prove that what you're doing is, is working. Um yeah, I think that's that's kind of the basics of it. Um, the rest of the things we look for are we, you know, diversity in the cohorts huge. So last time, you know, we had teams from Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, and then around Southeast Asia. Um, so we're recruiting regionally. Um, there needs to be a compelling reason for you to be in Singapore, though, right? Mm. So, why why are you flying over here from Bangladesh? So they've got to come. So, here.
1: they've got to be based here.
0: Yeah. So we're doing a, a three about a three month program, and then we go to Silicon Valley, and then we do Demo Day. So the total mm. the total is about four months, mm-hmm. two cohorts a year. Um, that's that's yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. Um, but they do have to be here, and we're hopefully cross our fingers we'll get access to some visas so that they can actually stay for a, mm-hmm. a full year. Uh, but that's still in process. So. That's the nuts and bolts it's of the exciting program. exciting times. Yeah. This would be great yeah, yeah. as
1: well. I mean, you're building it on your that's own good. now, which is great. I mean, you now yeah, you've got complete scary, control over that program.
0: Control comes with responsibility, right? There you go. And then the buck stops with me now. So it's if it all goes to shit, then it's all on me. <laughs> but, but that's how it but goes. But that's why you're in it. Yeah. That's
1: why you're in it, right? You signed up for this. So I think. No, it's I like
0: be... it. Listen, I, it's a bit of a dream job because I get to be a startup and I get to be Absolutely, an yeah. investor. And, a, and the accelerator stuff is, I love it. And just. You know, I probably come across between 500 and 1,000 startups a year that I meet face-to-face. Mm. And um, the quality year by year is going up and up. And so you're just seeing better ideas. You're mm. seeing um, better founders. So you're seeing people who um, two or three years ago would be just at you know, a bank or McKinsey or mm. just kicking butt in that. But now you're seeing more of those types of people feel like they can do entrepreneurship. And mm. I think that's awesome. Mm. You're seeing the regional. I mean, Jakarta was... A there was no startup scene in Jakarta three years ago. And now it's kicking, yeah, man. Yeah, it's yeah. big. Yeah. And, and so, I, you know, I hope, I hope it's kind of the right place at the right time. And, and I, I hope that our product market fits good with regards to, like, what we're offering to the startups and and what the startups want out of a program. And I think we are based on, you know, what we've experienced so far. But time will tell. And there's a lot of new entrants into the market as well, mm-hmm. as you know. I don't know. There was like 53 startup accelerators, I think I read in some article. In Singapore? In Singapore. We'll be the only independent startup accelerator.
1: Well, there's your moat.
0: So there's our moat. Yeah. There you go. Although we hear that there's some coming, so we'll see it.
1: Well, we're rooting for yeah. you. I think it's an exciting journey, and I'd love mm. to take a snapshot of that journey as you go on, see what the latest is, update mm. us. You know, when you've done your roadshow, come along and share your insights. Bring your cohort here as well. We'd love to get them in. If there's any sort of quality like the ones you had at Muradi? We've mentioned some of the names as well already. Some of those are fantastic. So we'd love to bring them on here and help get them exposure as well. So, Craig, it's been a real privilege. Thanks for sharing your journey, the man of many talents.
0: Thanks for having me. And we look forward
1: to that, the the next chapter as we start. So what is the best way? What's your preferred channel for people to reach out for you? Because I'm sure people have watched this, heard this and they may just want to get in touch. They may not be ready yet, but they may be preparing for something. They may be, like you say, six to 12 months away from around and think, okay, I've got to talk to Craig. What's your preferred manner or method for that?
0: Yeah, I mean, email's fine. So it's just craig at acceleratingasia.com. Um, ping me on LinkedIn, typically I need to, I get too many pings. So often I'll need like a referral for that or, or something, but um, but email's a good way to do it. Mm. Um, ideally, you can come through another channel. So if it's one of my founders or an investor said that you should talk to me or something like that. That's That always helps. Um, and that's also good advice for trying to get in front of investors. Absolutely. Get the warm intro. Right?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. The referral. So. Craig Dickson, everybody. Thanks so much, Craig. Great. Thanks, guys.
0: You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.